0: May the God of peace fill you with all joy in believing. Amen. The word of God for our meditation this morning is a single verse from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8, verse 34. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. This is the word of our God. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. If you, you have the right to an attorney, and if you cannot afford an attorney, one will be provided for you. Nobody wants to hear those words. Those, of course, are your Miranda rights, sometimes also referred to as the Miranda warning. It's what police officers recite to those they have arrested. And the whole point of it is to let the person who's been arrested know of his rights under the United States Constitution, specifically his Fifth Amendment right to avoid self-incrimination. The last sentence is kind of interesting. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be provided for you. Now that is done at government expense. You see, our government actually pays to provide defenders for those who cannot provide defenders for themselves. And my friends, our God does something similar for each and every one of us. Each one of us has a defender provided at God's expense. Jesus Christ, our crucified, risen, and ascended Savior, is that defender, and what a defender he is. You see, first, he paid the penalty for our crimes, and even now, he pleads our case before his Father's throne in heaven. If you've ever been in court for any reason, you know that it's kind of a scary place. Even if you're just serving as a part of the jury or as a witness, I was in court a few years ago as a witness to something, and I can tell you it was, a, it was a little bit scary. But if you're sitting in the defendant's seat, then things can go from scary to downright terrifying. My friends, we do sit in the defendant's seat. We are accused of crime. Indeed, we are accused of every single crime there is. We are accused of breaking every one of our God's commands. We are accused of failing to put him first in our lives. We are accused of misusing his name or just simply not using his name at all as we should. We are accused of despising preaching and his word. We are accused of dishonoring and disobeying those in authority over us. We are accused of having hateful thoughts and murder in our hearts and and failing to help our neighbor in time of need. We are accused of impure thoughts and words and actions. We are accused of having hearts that are often filled with greed. We are accused of of using our words to tear others to pieces, to cut them apart rather than building them up, rather than protecting their reputations. We are accused of, of being the kind of people who are constantly looking over the fence and coveting what God has given to our neighbor. Yes, we are accused of all of these crimes. Now, of course, the accusations are untrue, right? No, every one of them is dead on. Every one of them is exact because you see, each one of us has a rap sheet that is a mile long. The case against us is rock solid and it is ironclad. But I want to direct your attention to the question that the Apostle Paul posed this morning. It's interesting. He says, who then is the one who condemns? In other words, who's the prosecuting attorney in our case? Who's the one who's bringing all these accusations against us? Well, in one sense, it is the old evil foe. In fact, the oldest and most evil foe, Satan, the devil. And boy, does he ever have a case against us, a strong case. He doesn't need a big legal team. He doesn't need to go digging for dirt on us because quite frankly, our sins are right out there for everybody to see. Paul talked about this in his letter to the Galatians. He said, the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. And in case you didn't find something on that long list that relates to you, or that you can relate to, he ends it with a very general term. He says, and the like, which means that none of us can escape accusation. Every single one of us is guilty. We have done the crime, and therefore we deserve to do the time, an eternity of time, an eternity of suffering in hell. And in hell, my friends, there is no hope of parole. In fact, in hell, there isn't even hope of hope. But again, come back to that question for a second, who is the one who condemns? Paul doesn't ask that question really to get at the identity of our accuser. We know who that is, we know it's Satan. He really asks the question in this sense, of what consequence is the one who condemns? Or what weight do his accusations carry? And the answer is, he is of no consequence, and his accusations carry no weight. But I thought those accusations were true. They are true, and yet they still carry no weight. Why not? Because, as our text tells us, Christ Jesus died. Wait for it. More than that, he was raised to life. Jesus died and he rose for us to take away all of our sins. Martin Luther had a, a, a very tender conscience. He just had a, a deep sense of his own sinfulness and it plagued him, it troubled him, it kept him up at nights uh, throughout his entire life. He had an interesting way of dealing with it and sometimes he would even say these words out loud. Whenever Satan was just pounding on him, just coming with his accusations, Marty you did this, you did that, uh, he would say to him, Satan you're right, I, I did do all of those things and I did say And think all of those things and you're forgetting a few things Satan you're forgetting this and this and this make sure to put those on your list and then you take that list to my Lord Jesus Christ you can deal with him my friends we can do the same thing with the long list of our sins because we have the very same Savior yes we did the crime But our Lord Jesus did the time in our place. He took our place in the defendant's chair. He took our place in the prison of hell for us. He paid the penalty for our crimes. St. Peter put it this way. He said, Christ suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. The righteous for the unrighteous. We've all heard the term whipping boy, right? We're familiar with that. Did you know that whipping boy was actually an official position on the English court during the Tudor and Stuart monarchies of the 15th and 16th centuries? It was an official position. They found somebody and made him officially the whipping boy. And the reason for this is that they considered princes to be divinely appointed. And since they were divinely appointed, you couldn't punish them, you couldn't touch them. And so if the prince did something wrong, in came this official position, in came the whipping boy and he was punished Jesus is our whipping boy I mean his back was torn open by that scourge because of our sins and those thorns pierced his brow because of our rebellion against God and those nails put him on that cross and held him to that cross because of our offenses his father condemned him to die and actually damned him to hell in our place because of all of our crimes and I want you to understand something very clearly my friends nobody made Jesus do this. Jesus served as our whipping boy willingly. He willingly took our place and suffered the punishment for our crimes because he loves us. And what he did, the payment that he made counted. How do we know that? Well, because our text tells us he was raised to life. The empty tomb is the sign and the seal and the stamp of approval of God the Father on everything that our Lord Jesus did for us. It's a giant billboard proclaiming, I accept what he did. Scripture tells us this. It tells us that Jesus was delivered over to death because of our sins. And he was raised to life because of our justification. God raised Jesus from the grave because he accomplished his mission through his death on the cross, which was our justification. We are now innocent. Pure, not guilty in the eyes of our God, not guilty of all those crimes we have committed against him. Satan can, can holler and rage and scream and accuse all that he wants, but it's never going to stick, because when our divine judge brings down his gavel, he's going to proclaim not guilty because of Jesus. My friends, if that wasn't comfort enough uh, for our sinful hearts this morning, then what comes next is more comfort. The one who earned our not guilty verdict for us is even now pleading our case before his heavenly Father. A little while ago, we heard St. Luke's very simple, unadorned account of our Lord's ascension. He put it this way. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. And what an awesome sight that must have been, especially for Jesus' disciples, to watch him rise into heaven. I mean, they had seen him beaten and bruised and bloodied and finally buried in that tomb. Now, to see him rising in glory, in complete victory over all his enemies, having accomplished his mission, I mean, their hearts must have just about beat out of their chest and there must not have been a dry eye among them, and I bet they could hardly breathe as they watched this. But what's even more comforting than the sight of Jesus rising into heaven. What's even more awesome is the comfort that that ascension gives us. We have the confidence right now that our ascended king in all power and authority is ruling all things for what? For us and for our good. We have the certainty that right now he is preparing a place for us in heaven. We have the comfort that one day he's going to come back again and he's going to take us to that place that he has prepared for us in heaven. And my friends, we have the peace. We have the peace of knowing that right now he is pleading our case before his father's throne. Our text tells us that Jesus is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. To be at God's right hand, which we often confess in the creed, is to be in that position of all power and authority. And how is Jesus using all that mighty power? To serve himself? No, of course not. He's using it to serve us. He's using it for our good. And one of the ways he uses it is by, as our text says, interceding for us just what does that mean that our Lord Jesus intercedes for us before his Father in heaven? I think St. John has a wonderful explanation in his first epistle. He says, we have an advocate, an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. Jesus is like our defense lawyer who pleads our case before the judge. He continually is defending us before our Father in heaven. And you might think to yourself, what in the world can Jesus possibly say in my defense? How can he stand there and proclaim my innocence before the Father in heaven? You have to remember that he doesn't talk to the Father on the basis of our innocence, but on the basis of his innocence in our place. We can imagine his defense going something like this, Father, the accused are certainly guilty as charged. The evidence against them is incredibly strong. There's no doubt about that. But Father, I took their place. And I kept all of your laws perfectly in their place. I served an innocent life. And then, Father, I went to the cross where you sent me. I went there and I stretched out my arms and I shed my precious blood and I paid for every last one of their sins. It is finished. I even suffered hell in their place. And you accepted that payment, Father. You accepted it and you showed that when you raised me from the dead. Father, you cannot demand payment for sin a second time. In your great grace, you must pardon the accused. And after hearing such an argument, the Father can do nothing but bring down his holy gavel and proclaim us not guilty. you ever seen the reaction? In a courtroom, when that not guilty verdict comes down, it's very interesting to see. Have you ever watched that on the TV news or something like that? There is just instant relief, right? And then hugs and handshakes are shared between the defendant, the accused, uh, and his or her lawyer uh, and the family members. And then they—it probably isn't a dry eye in the house. And then they can't wait to get out of that courtroom. They can't wait to go and to start over and really begin living life again. And isn't that exactly our reaction to the verdict that we have from our Heavenly Father through Jesus? I mean, aren't we just filled with relief every day? Sweet relief to know that our sins have been taken away, that we are completely and utterly forgiven. And are we not filled with absolute joy, joy in the good news of our salvation? And don't we want to just go and leave that past sinful life behind us and move on and live a completely new life and really live not for ourselves anymore, but for him who died for us and was raised again? My friends, of course we want to go and we want to live that life because Christ's love compels us. Brothers and sisters, I want to read you your rights one more time. Uh, This time it's going to be a little bit different. You have the right to the full and free forgiveness for every single one of your sins. You have the right to a completely new life, a life of peace with God, a life of power to live with him, a life that is filled with joyous purpose. You have the right to an eternity with your God, an eternity of peace and joy and perfection in heaven, which lasts forever and ever and ever. These rights were secured and obtained for you at great expense to our Heavenly Father. They were won for you by His Son who lived and died and rose for you. My friends, thank God for your Lord Jesus Christ. Thank God for His life. Thank God for His death. Thank God for His resurrection. Thank God for His ascension. Thank God for your defender, your ascended Lord Jesus Christ. In His holy name, amen.